When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Hello everyone and welcome to Hidden Histories. For this episode, I met up with Kate Moss, the best-selling author of Labyrinth, Citadel, and most recently The Burning Chambers. I am a huge fan of Kate's work and she was utterly fascinating to talk to. It was particularly interesting to hear how she weaves incredible historical details and research into the absorbing narrative that she is so famous for. Kate and I met at the French Protestant Church in Soho to discuss her latest book, The Burning Chambers, which focuses on the persecution of the Huguenots in the 16th century French wars of religion. The French Protestant Church in London was formed to support the refugees of that war, and as they fled France for London, they were desperately looking for safety, which the church provided. So I apologise for the banging, as there was quite a bit of work going on in the church, but nonetheless, I hope you enjoy the podcast. So, Kate, your book is set in 16th century France in the wake of one of the many Huguenot massacres. Can you tell me who were the Huguenots? I can. The the Huguenots were um, essentially French Protestants. And they were, um, at that point in 1562, when my novel The Burning Chamber starts, they were about 10% of the population. And there had been quite a lot of discussion about the nature of... Protestant religion in England, as it then was, and of course in the Lowlands, uh, the, you know Amsterdam was one of the great sort of Reformation uh, centres as well. And in France, it was uh, an interesting mixture. There were quite a lot of Huguenots in the southwest. There were a lot in Paris in the north. But at that moment, it was becoming not a rival at all to Catholicism because they they weren't numerous, but they were very heavily overrepresented in the areas of medicine, of science, of law, of engineering, of bookselling. So there was a whole sort of group of people who had quite a lot of voice and quite a lot of power, and they were the Huguenots. Wonderful. And can you give us a background on the wars of the religion and 
how they affected 16th century society and you know what were the what were the key points that were at issue the novel that i have written the burning chambers starts um, on the last day of february 1562 and i did that deliberately because although there had been skirmishes for some time uh, between catholics and huguenots Truthfully, an awful lot of that was about power at court, um, as well as issues of faith. And as so often with religious wars, there's money and power underneath it. And on the 1st of March, 1562, in a place called Vassy, in the north of France, near the borders of of Lorraine, the Duke of Guise was travelling back towards Paris. He'd been out of favour for a couple of years with Catherine de' Medici in the French court. And he came across a group of Huguenots worshipping in their temple which they were allowed to do. And the temple was built outside the walls of a town called Vassy. And of course, we will never know exactly what happened, but essentially all of the men, women and children within the temple were massacred by the armed forces of the Duke of Guise. And I start down in the southwest in Carcassonne and Toulouse because on that day, my lead character goes to work in her bookshop as usual. And she has no idea that hundreds of miles away, an engagement is happening that will start what we call the Wars of Religion. And it's a sequence of wars that goes from March 1562 to April 1598. And historians, you know, some say there were seven, some say there were eight, some say there were nine. It's really depends on whether you see them as individual or equate them together. But that was the beginning of what was essentially a civil war that lasted that period of time until Henry IV, then King of France, signed the Edict of Nantes, giving religious toleration, giving rights to the Huguenots within set uh, fortified Huguenot cities. So where does French Protestantism sit in the wider story of the Reformation? We were so familiar with the Reformation in England. I mean, what was happening in France? Within France, um, there were a sequence of mishaps in a weird sort of way that really play completely into this and why there is a power battle going on at court. So the great French king that's often overlooked is Francis I. And he was a really great ruler and he had uh, a range of children. And Catherine de Medici, who had the sons that were going to inherit, one by one the the sons either were killed early or were really probably not necessarily mentally unstable, but certainly not suitable for ruling, shall we say. And she was therefore in a battle with other rich Catholic families, the Guise, key amongst them, about what would happen. And she was the regent at the time of the Wars of Religion. She was the regent of her son, Charles IX, who was a minor, so was not able to rule. And there were certain key Huguenots that were very powerful at court who were, as people thought it, controlling the young king. And that is really what is particular about Huguenots Huguenotism, as it were, as opposed to the Protestant Reformation. So within France, there were pastors coming back from Geneva, which was where uh, Calvin had set up his sort of consistory. Um, There was a great exchange of literature with the situation in England when the monasteries had been sacked. Then they had Bloody Mary, and of course then Elizabeth had come to the throne. But a lot of sacred texts, particularly Protestant texts, had found their way into Europe. So bookselling was very important in this as well. So it, in a funny sort of way, I always feel that the faith issues at the beginning of the wars of religion, of course they're significant, but they're not quite as significant as they are going to become after the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre in 1572, 
which is at the end of you know, the third war of religion we've had by then. And at that moment, the tenor of the wars of religion becomes more about faith and it becomes more bloody and more violent and more visceral. So we're actually sat in the um, French Protestant church in Soho. When did the Huguenots arrive in London and how were they received? Well, this church has an inscription over the door about Edward VI, the very short bit king, in 1550, who welcomed the Huguenots here. And of course, this was the great Protestant nation at that time, Edward, and then of course it went backwards with Mary, known as Bloody Mary, and then back to Elizabeth. And also the Netherlands, you know, that there were wars there between the Catholics and the Protestants in, in the Netherlands. So these were the two places that were taking in a large number of what were refugees. And the refugees coming early, 1550 is the inscription on the, on the church here, um, is simply because the, the atmosphere was becoming uncomfortable for some Huguenots. Um, there had been lots of skirmishes. They, you know, they could easily have been called wolves, but they, they, they'd never given that. There'd been uh, you know, the conspiracy of Amboise, and there's always been a sense of who was assassinating whom and which of the Catholics and the Huguenot leaders were in charge and who was on the up and who was on the down. So the Protestant nations were firstly going to welcome them in because they were their brothers and sisters, as it were. But secondly, I imagine because England and Huguenotism is what I'm coming to in the second book, and I'm very much writing about France at the moment, is a bit of good old-fashioned common sense. These were, um, in you know, not the language of the time, but one could define the Huguenot refugees. Many of them were what we would now call middle class, and they brought with them money in some cases, and they brought with them skill. And any sensible ruler would think we would like these people, they will give our country an edge. So I think there is an element of that in this, and we know that the Huguenots enriched pretty much every nation that they went to. Um, and so I think that was partly what was going on. And what I'm doing at the moment is, you know, in the second book, we will be coming a little bit into London, and we will be get, certainly uh, coming a little bit into, the, into England, as it then was. And there is a wonderful Huguenot Museum in Rochester and Kent, and I will be spending quite a lot of time there researching book two. Okay, so that actually leads quite well onto my next question. So areas in London and Europe, I mean, can you draw attention to any historical sites regarding your novel that may just be, you know, bypassed on a, a significant, on a more general tourist trail? We're sitting in this beautiful um, French Protestant church in the heart of Soho, and it is the most beautiful building and it has wonderful sort of arches and pillars and a few flying buttresses at the end and a wonderful wooden sort of ceiling above what in a Catholic church would be the altar and the choir, and it's a slightly different thing. It is the sense of a temple, and Protestant churches, uh, the Huguenot churches, they were called temples, not churches. Um, but I bet you most people don't know it's here. No, absolutely. I mean, I've lived in London yeah. for 10 years and yeah. I had no yeah. idea. And, you know, and if they know that there's a church here at all, of course, there is St. Patrick's Catholic Church on the other side of the square. And that, in a way, tells the story of Huguenot Catholic um, engagement. Um, the wonderful thing about launching the Burning Chambers and starting to talk to readers is in every audience, there has been somebody who's told me something wonderful. So in a, a couple of days ago, somebody said, have you ever been to the Huguenot graveyard in Cork? Cork and an actual Huguenot graveyard in Cork. And so this is one of the joyous things about, I'm not a historian, I am a passionate reader of history. I do as much research as I can, and of course always try to get it right, but I'm writing imaginary stories about people who could have lived against the backdrop of real history. 
But the joy of being a novelist on tour is that readers tell you new things. And of course, one of the things for me about writing book two, The City of Tears, which is set mostly in Amsterdam, but will come into England, as it then was UK now, um, is that I know that people are going to start telling me about hidden stories that I don't yet know. And that is one of the joys about research. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. Um, so it was a trip to South Africa that inspired you to write this series of books. And you've been working on this for five years. You've been really head down, really busy. So what happened in South Africa? I went to a, a, the wonderful French Book Festival, which is a gem of festivals. And it's held in the obviously the little town of Franchuk, which is about 30 k's of southwest of Cape Town in the Stellenbosch, in the wine region of uh, South Africa. And as I drove uh, into the town for the first time, I noticed a sign at the side of the road that said Longadoc. And I was astonished because, of course, Longadoc is the name of the region I write about in, in the southwest of France. And it was spelt the Q, but there was that sign. And I got into the, uh, the main town and saw that the street, main street is called Huguenot Street. And then I noticed that all the restaurants were, had French names. And I went to the graveyard, as novelists always do, and I saw many French names on the tombstones that by and by were caught up and eaten up by the Dutch names, the Dutch settler names. And so I asked somebody, I said, you know, I, I, I don't know any of the history of here. What, what is this about? And they said, oh, don't you know that the, the name Franchuk means the French corner? And a group of families fled persecution in Europe and came here after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, which was in 1685, and brought their winemaking skills here. And in a way, that is how the wine industry in South Africa started. Sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. So the connections, the idea of taking your skills completely to another country, but finding the land was quite similar. Obviously, Languedoc is an enormous wine-growing region. It's a very powerful region now. So the idea of the ancestry and the way that sometimes, the, you know, we know this, refugees, wherever they come from, bring enormous riches to the countries that they settle in. And that was my story immediately there, like 300 years of history, Romeo and Juliet story, a Catholic family, a Protestant family, and, and travelling from one type of landscape all the way across the world, not knowing what your, your, your reception would be, and yet somehow finding myself in a land that looked a little bit like home. And just listening to you describe that story is quite wonderful, because without spoiling too much, you do actually open your book in a graveyard in South Africa. Of course. So, so I open most of my books in a graveyard somewhere. So. <laughs> okay, so... Do you base any of the characters in your book quite heavily on people that you have come across in your research? No, I don't. Um, I think one of the things that is really important is that at the moment there is a great deal of fabulous historical fiction being written. And in the old days there was always a sort of idea that historical fiction wasn't really history anyway, it wasn't very accurate, it was a little bit down market. You know, they used to be known when I was a publisher 30 years ago, they were known as bodice rippers. You know, oh, that yeah, was the yeah, idea. That um, <laughs> but in fact, there has been a really strong, uh, powerful writing. And a lot of this is being led by people like Hilary Mantel, obviously, Philippa Gregory, obviously, who has a doctorate in, you know. So it's that sort of thing that, and, and of course, great historians, you know, Susanna Liscombe and uh, Kate Williams, you know, writing historical fiction out of their, their knowledge and their uh, scholarship. So I think for me, 
um, when I um, was starting to write. And the way that I think about it is that there are many people writing about the court and kings and queens and the decisions made by popes and generals and the rulers. And they are the people in the history book. So they're there. But what I do is I write ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. So I know the sort of life that people would have led. I know the sort of clothes they would have worn, the food they would have eaten, uh, the things they might have done to pass the day, what would be expected when people would marry, what books they might have had, how many people could read, all of those things. But then I start to play with my imaginary friends um, because I feel very strongly about you know history. We know that you know that old phrase that it's written by the winners, but it's also written by the rulers and about the rulers. And actually, what I'm doing in the burning chambers and the sequence that follows is saying, what about all the rest of us, the consequences of the decisions the rulers make on the huge majority of other people's lives, the people like us? So they are made-up people, but they could have lived. Absolutely. So what about the narrative? So any sort of little threads in your narrative, were they inspired by maybe some little anecdotal stories that you came across in your research, or is it a purely imagined sequence of events? No, um, the, my story comes out of my research. So I knew that I wanted to write a, 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 an epic adventure story of a sequence of books. I knew it would last 300 years. I knew it would essentially start in the Languedoc in 1562 on the eve of the Wars of Religion. I knew it would end in Franschhoek, and I had a sense of the pace of each book, but I didn't know who was going to take my story forward, and I didn't know what the story was. But then when I start to research, and this is why, you know, I duck questions about what happened in London when the Huguenots got here, because I haven't done that research yet, because there is terrific history about all of these things, but for me, it's always, as you say, about finding the hidden gem around which my story takes flight, you know, it gets its colour into its cheeks. And so it was discovery. Uh, without spoiling anything too much about the, the story, that in 1562, so 10 years before the notorious Bartholomew's Day massacre, in Toulouse, there was a massacre of nearly 4,000 people. And, and I suddenly thought, oh, in my part of France that I love, that had happened, that's interesting. And then discovered that there had been a trigger for that a few weeks before it Actually, the massacre started in May 1562. Something had happened in April around a funeral of a Huguenot woman uh, whose Catholic family had never accepted that she had become a Huguenot and tried to disrupt the funeral and steal her body back. Now, for a novelist, this will never make it into a history book. I mean, there's, I found it in great research and great archives, and there are some great writers about the Huguenots. Um, Key amongst them is a, is a man, uh, Greengrass, and I think he's a really terrific animator of the detail of the story. Um, so I found these things in history books, but for me, suddenly it's like, absolutely, because that becomes a scene. It's not a statement of dates or events or numbers or even the edicts that had led up to it or the ways in which certain factions were or weren't respecting the laws of the time. It's a properly human story because we can all, whether we know anything about Huguenots and Toulouse in 1562 or nothing at all, we can all imagine how appalling that would be that you're at a funeral and other people charge into the funeral and try and steal a coffin. 
So, and that is what my historical fiction is about, is about what are the emotions that those people would have felt in the past, that we understand that, and we're not so very different. Absolutely. And, I mean, how do you even begin with your research? And can you describe the process you follow from history to fiction? I do a huge amount of research that is what I think of as book research, and that's reading historians, both French and English, because some interpretations in France are not necessarily the same as English or American historians have had, as you would imagine. I rely on friends that speak Dutch and you know other countries that have a very strong legacy within this particular period of history. I obviously visit museums and... Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Libraries and archives. So I spend a lot of time with the paper, as it were. And one of the key things for me is always the maps, you know, finding maps of the region. You know, in the Toulouse archives, you know, you can see maps of Toulouse roughly that period. They're not exactly bang on, but some quarters, uh, you know, of Toulouse are therefore still very much the footprint they were in the period of time I'm writing about in 1562. Others, of course, completely different, you know, the the huge flowering of the city again in the 19th century. And of course, some of those buildings are wrong for me. But when you look on a map, you get the sense of the size of the streets, the things that would have been there, and all of those sorts of research. I then do research into what it would have meant to live then. And it's a daft example, but it kind of says everything in one example. In that period of time, partly led by the Spanish court, partly led by the English court under Elizabeth, clothes got more and more extreme. Now, people didn't walk around looking like Elizabeth I on their day-to-day lives. A lot of that is courtly clothes. And obviously, we all have a Sunday best version of specialness, you know, that is not our jeans and, and, and trainers. But at the same time, women had farthingales, so they had sort of, you know, carapace under their skirts that pushed the skirt out. If you write an adventure novel, like I do, 
My lead character is 19. She's called Minu. She is a strong and courageous woman, and she is the person that carries the story forward. She is the hero of the story. Can she run in a farthing game or not? How wide is it? Could she get through a door? Could she climb up a ladder to escape soldiers? And these are the things where historical fiction comes to life because we can look at a picture and just see a still, you know, two-dimensional or if the artist is good, three-dimensional sense of person. But when you're writing a story, it's about the reality of women's lives and indeed the reality of men's lives. And one of the things I did, you know, realise, you could because it would come up every now and again in a piece of research, is, you know, there was a big thing going on in, in France at the time of men wearing Spanish cloaks. I thought, what are Spanish cloaks? It just turned out they were really short cloaks. But it's a really huge thing. And, of course, that then starts to be a clue. So it's those sorts of details I then do in the research about clothing and shoes and all of that. Would the men have beards or not? Would the priests have beards or not? Because if they do or they don't, that makes a difference to my plotting. If I'm trying to disguise somebody, maybe I'd do that. So all of the things about the story that are fun to write and I hope really wonderful for people to read come out of research because that's what makes it, you know, have its, its real life, makes it sort of smell right, you know. And then I do field research, and that is the walking about. And, I, you know, I spend a certain amount of time in Carcassonne, southwest of France. With this book, I was in Carcassonne and Toulouse for five days every month. Um, and obviously have been in Franchuk a couple of times, and have just been in Paris researching book two. And for me, that is about the sense of the city, when you know that Paris actually... In 1572, you could walk from the Louvre Palace to the Bastille, which is the outlines of the walls on the on the, the right bank, and it will only take you 20 minutes. The way you write your story totally changes. Whereas if you just imagine Paris now, it doesn't tell you anything. So all of those things happen before I sit down at my desk and start to dream. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting hearing you talk about that because being a reader you really do get a sense of being completely immersed in in the in the scene when you know from the smells yeah, the sides of the textures good, of the clothes good, good, good. so that's so interesting so i think your characters are so identifiable i mean you have um alais in labyrinth yeah. who you know this is this is 13th century France, and you can really identify with her. Um, but then also Minou as well. And do you think the issues raised in the book are equally identifiable and actually quite timeless? I think, well, I, I love that you link Minou and Alaïs because for me, The Burning Chambers is kind of the sister book to Labyrinth, actually. I've written other books in between, obviously, but. Labyrinth was about the Cathar Crusade, so a community being ripped apart by decisions around faith and land and, and, and uh, power. And the Burning Chambers is about Huguenot Catholic conflict, but the spirit is the same. And I think that I never think about issues. That's not how I write. I am writing stories, and I'm writing characters that people will identify with. But I think the for many of us, the depressing thing about history, which is why you know many of us think that history should be the number one subject on, on the curriculum, is that we don't ever seem to learn from history because actually the patterns of how peoples go to war don't really change very much. And in the end, you ask what they were fighting about. You know, one of the things that Huguenots and Catholics were fighting about was the right to worship in French. Now, to us, it's like, what? 
But of course, then you go back to Labyrinth and it's owning a Bible in Occitan was punishable by death. So it's always about control and it's always about power. Um, so when I started researching this and writing this, I could not, um, you know, the idea that the world would, that we see around us right at the moment would be as it is, of course, wasn't in my mind. You know, I'm only writing about the 16th century. Historical fiction only works if it is set completely in the period in which its time is set. You have to have the integrity of that. However, at the moment, in the outside world, what are we talking about? We're talking about who is a refugee? Why did that happen? If you are forced by war and displacement from your home, through no fault of your own, where do you go? What happens when you arrive in another country that you think will give you a refuge and they send you away at the border? Now we've seen this all the way through history, and we're seeing it again now. Um, and so I think that's what's, in a way, rather strange. You know, the burning chambers has been in my head, and I've been thinking about it since sort of 2010 or so. And it wasn't the same view outside the window then. Okay, so you don't deviate from uncomfortable history in your novels, and these wars were notoriously bloody. Is there anything in particular that shocked you, and how did you factor that into the overall narrative? Um, I think one of the things that is really important when you write historical fiction is that you don't make the reality of the violence pretty uh, because in the end real people lived and died and within certainly the Cathal Crusade in Labyrinth and now uh, the Huguenot persecution and indeed the, the, the battles between Catholics and Protestants on both sides they were notoriously violent. So even people at the time who are writing records of massacres and things are commenting on the level of violence. So therefore, that for me meant that it had to be visceral when it was there. I pull out quite early in most cases, but I don't flinch when we start. So the book starts with a, a pretty difficult scene, but it really matters because the point about that is Normal people are living their lives as they've always lived them. They have no idea that a massacre in the north is about to rip France in two, and they have no idea of the crimes going on behind the walls of their own city. And we, the reader, do know. So we understand that the stakes are higher than the characters understand they are. And so, of course, then we start to realise Minu's father is not just not talking to us. Maybe something's happened to him. And I think I don't have that much violence in, the, in my books. And it was exactly the same with Labyrinth, but they are very carefully chosen scenes. And I do believe that we owe it to the memory of the people who suffered in that way to just look it in the eye and say, this is the reality of life. And this is what human beings are capable of doing to one another. Because otherwise, when you have a scene, if you're writing, with a Catholic and a Huguenot household, and the soldiers come and say to the Catholics, if you don't tell me where those Huguenots are hiding, I'm gonna take your husband, your son, your daughter away to the prison. We don't know what the stakes are, and it'd be very easy to say, well, they shouldn't give them up. But when you know the reality of what was going on, then you think, yeah, that's a harder decision to make. And again, that's about all of us, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. The story of Minu and Pete is a sort of, as you said, a Romeo and Juliet type relationship, Catholic and Protestant. Um, 
in your research, did you come across any evidence of their interreligious relationships? And were you inspired by, by anything that you found? I was very surprised that it became so heavily a love story so quickly. In my mind, it was a Romeo and Juliet story, but of families, a Catholic family and a Huguenot family. Um, but the moment I started writing, Pete, which is spelled P-I-E-T, because it's a Dutch name, he just was there bigger than I was imagining, right up front. And Minu was kind of more ready for love than I was expecting her to be right up front. And the, the thing was that although there had been, as I've said, skirmishes um, for a long time, between Catholics and Protestants, going backwards and forwards and all of these things. And it was, you know, the, the key uh, leaders, military leaders on both sides. Actually, normal people, there were some that were very bigoted and just hated somebody simply because they were Huguenot or simply because they were Jewish. That was obviously a very big thing as well. It was this period of the conversos in Spain and the horrible inquisition against Jewish people in Spain. And many of those people had fled over the border into southwest of France, as you would imagine. So people were just normal. So people fell in love with people. You know, it, they might convert one way or the other, or they might not. At that moment, ordinary people didn't, in the same way as what happened as the wars went on, have to identify with one or the other. Like all of us, we don't want to be defined by one thing. We want to be ourselves. And at the beginning of the wars of the region, for, for ordinary communities, within reason, that was, that was fine. There was just normal intermingling, as it were. It was only really after the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre where the, the, the wars became properly entrenched and it became properly two sides that it started to be difficult to be Romeo and Juliet. And, you know, within the burning chambers, you know, there are, there are decisions going on, which I won't spoil, that in subsequent novels would not be possible. So you see this really big sort of battening down the hatches after the massacre in Paris in 1562, because almost all the Huguenot leadership is murdered. And that makes a difference to the power balance. Before then, it had been six of one, half a dozen of the other, and then suddenly have a very different answer. Okay, so you are in, you're going to about to start the research for the next book, or you're very much... I'm in it at the moment. You're in it at the moment. And you said that's going to be in the Netherlands and London mostly. Can you give us a little bit of a hint as to what's coming? Well, it's called The City of Tears, and it's set in a little bit in Paris to start with, and then in Amsterdam, mostly, and then there will be a little bit into um, England. And all I will say is that people who read The Burning Chambers, they will see that it finishes, There's a, the epilogue is in 1572, and it is the family, and I won't say even who's in the family, uh, trying to decide whether they should go to Paris for the royal wedding. Because they wouldn't want to miss that, would they? And it's going to be the wedding of a generation. And it will be brilliant, and some of them have never been to Paris. And of course, what I want is my readers to be going, don't go to Paris, you know, because we know this is a mistake. And so that's really where I am at the moment. So I'm spending a lot of time in Paris at the moment. And the thing is, I don't know who's going to survive. Not yet. Because until I finish the research and I get into the writing properly, some of my lovely characters will get away, I hope, and some won't. Oh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Good. So, Kate, when is The Burning Chambers available for everybody to go out and... Today. Uh, today, it's out today. It's publication day today. Okay, it's publication day today. So, everyone, when you're going to be listening to this slightly, um, slightly ahead, so The Burning Chambers will be available 
in your local bookshop and Amazon. And I urge you, having been, I'm about, I'm about sort of. Uh, halfway through at the moment it's a bit of a doorstop book but you can't put it down when you do pick it up I really do urge you to go out and buy it and thank you Kate for such a fantastic interview it was a real pleasure to meet you thank you Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.